0: RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all ever Okay start the thing Welcome to another episode of RNMD, a show about doctors and nurses working together in this mad world of medicine. I'm Abby, your nurse host, and today I have Dr. Gerald Diaz joining me. He is the creator of GrepMed. It is an online platform to help spread education and uh, specifically like visual content um, that you would maybe be able to find an up-to-date, but sometimes it's hard to find. And it really helps students or anyone who's new on a unit or just wants to know more about specific information. So it's a really cool initiative. And also Dr. Diaz um, received a DAISY award, which is specifically, I love his project and I really love um, him as a person, but I really wanted to point that out because I think that that's amazing because most nurses I know do not have a DAISY award. um, And a Daisy award for anybody who doesn't know is like a accolade for excellence in nursing and it's um, national and it's awarded only to like the best of the best. And he received one from um, the nurses at his old job. So I thought that that was really cool. And he's really interested in nursing and how we can work together and just such a lovely person. And we had just the best conversation. So check out Dr. Diaz um, on Instagram and Twitter, Gerald, MD. And then also check out GrepMed. It's G-R-E-P-M-E-D. And you can find that also on Instagram and Twitter and on their website, grepmed.com. Okay, here we go. First of all, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, no. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast. Ah, I think it's just a really great thing to highlight just some of the relationships between nurses and doctors. And, uh, you know, I just discovered it a few weeks ago before we started talking. And I think it really made me just listening to some of the conversations you were having. It's very introspective. I think of the way I was talking to some of the nurses, I think, especially at nighttime, I realized that I think in the past year, having moved to a new shop, I, you know, I wasn't being the way that I used to be, I think at my old place. And I was being maybe a little snippier than I should have been. So, uh, I feel like it's nice to see from some all sides what the relationships are like.
0: I wanna get into that. I'm not gonna let you off that easy, but first I just want to, if you wanna just introduce yourself and maybe how we started talking just so everybody knows.
1: Yeah, my name is Gerald Diaz. I'm an internal medicine hospitalist here in the Bay Area, of California. If you want me to go back further, I used to be a software engineer, graduated actually with a computer science degree. Then I had a change of heart and decided I wanted to help people. Very cliche. So I went to medical school in St. Louis, and I actually did two years of radiology training before changing my mind again and switching to internal medicine. So I graduated from UC Davis internal medicine residency 2016. I stayed on there as a hospitalist for three years before moving down to the South Bay.
0: I'm a hospitalist currently. That's awesome. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So wait. What were you saying about your nursing relationships before versus now? Like what's going on?
1: You know, I think, um, you know, I was at the same place for six years and I feel like, you know, um, know, I won a bunch of awards and I knew everybody by the first name. You know, I want to blame some of it on COVID. I think, um, you know, just not wanting to interact with people as much. But I Mm -hmm. think when I moved to a new shop, just felt a little bit grumpy that things aren't the way that they used to be. The EMR is just slightly different. All the people are different. At my new shop, there's um, Q8 shifts instead of Q12 shifts. And so there's just so many more nurses that you have to get to know. And it's more overwhelming. And so I think uh, listening to your podcast made me think about, you know, when I was being a little bit snippy with some of these direct messages or not answering some of them for different reasons, I was like, oh, you know, I really need to step back a little bit and realize, um, I think some of the words that uh, Babak was saying was just made me remember where I was coming from.
0: It's so funny that you brought up Bobek because I was literally right like two minutes before this started. I was just texting him and I'm trying to get him on board for this NP versus MD discussion. And he's oh like, uh, yeah, exactly. Obviously, he has like hesitancy, which I don't blame him at all. And I'm like, you can do it. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. So-
1: no, I was reading some of your, uh, I guess, your story messages. You're yeah. like a confessional booth for uh, a lot of different people. That's really cool.
0: It's really good. It can be difficult to know where the line is, right? Like, I'm not perfect. I don't know everything, you know? And some people send me things and I don't agree with them, but I feel like, they have a right to say them and other people have a right to respond. So like, I'm really trying to navigate where that line is right now. <laughs> yeah. And it's
1: really cool that I think that you anonymize a lot of the responses. Cause I feel like those are conversations that we should be able to have honestly, but you know, for political correctness reasons, I think we can't always say what we want to say. <laughs>
0: Definitely. <laughs> well, things
1: just get very heated really fast.
0: Exactly. I mean, that's the reason why, There's an NP also, and I don't want to, you know, go on record with that yet, but who is interested in doing this topic too, and really thinks, you know, independent practice is important for NPs. And that person also is like hesitant. And for the same reason, not because we can't have this conversation and be respectful and have different opinions, but because once we post it, like, what are people going to say? Like, are they going to cancel that NP? Are they going to cancel that doctor? You know, and that's just not productive.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's hard to have these conversations on Instagram as well. I feel like Twitter is probably the place where you can throw more bombs and uh, retweet stuff, and but the dialogue on Instagram is um, a little bit shallow. But compared to some of the, the answers that I see you getting, are very revealing.
0: Yeah, that's interesting you said that because, like, I feel like a lot of the doctors that I talk to, they're on Twitter more, and maybe the nurses are on Instagram more. And I just wonder. I guess, I don't know, maybe should we switch to Twitter? I don't know. I I don't know where this, you know, where it's going to end up. We'll see.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure either. I think they're both probably bad for your health and self-esteem, but um, they're (laughs) a lot of fun and they're very addicting. I try to encourage people to try both platforms. Twitter's Mm -hmm. a lot better in terms of dialogue and some of the teaching I think that goes on. And the interactions that you can have with celebrities and stuff like that or people that are thought influencers and things like that versus right. uh, Instagram. I feel it's a lot harder to get out there unless you really invest the six months, 12 months into really trying to blow up your account, which is a lot of work.
0: It is a lot of work. Yeah, it really is. I think that's the part that people don't always realize. When I see somebody with 50,000 followers, even I'm like, oh my God, like that took days of your life, weeks of your life <laughs> to get yeah. there. You know? Yeah, I mean, okay. So for everybody who's listening, I just want to point out the reason why we started talking from the beginning, and I was like, okay, you have to come on the podcast is because you told me that you won a Daisy Award, which I've never heard of a doctor winning ever. I've never won one as a nurse. So I think that's really impressive. So we have to talk about like all the circumstances. I want to hear the whole story.
1: Yeah, well, I think you got to work harder, Abby.
0: (laughs) No, that's the joke.
1: I I wear my pin very proudly on my white coat and uh, everybody always asks about it. They actually don't have that at my new shop. So it's a little bit sad that I can't boast about that, but uh, everybody mm-hmm. always asks about it. But you know, for the listeners that don't know, the DAISY Award is an award for extraordinary nurses. And so I always joke that the hospital administrators were just racist and they saw a Filipino guy. <laughs> they assumed I was a nurse. And so they <laughs> gave me this, this award and I'm really <laughs> mad about it. But I think without uh, getting into too much HIPAA information, I would say, you know, we just had a patient that was basically living in one of our units I think we all have these patients in our
0: definitely different hospitals definitely. where they're
1: there for three months. They're sort of abandoned by their families. They're, yeah.
0: You know, or even a year or two sometimes. Yeah.
1: I think our record was maybe two years.
0: Yeah. But same, same.
1: I think the nurses just noticed that I would take the time to high five this guy and always ask about him and just be aware of what was going on. And um, you know, they could always turn to me when they needed something, even though I wasn't always the person taking care of that patient. And the nurse, has just noticed that. You know, I'm not sure how official it is. I have the certificate. I sent it to you. I don't know if mm-hmm. there's a database somewhere. I didn't get any like money for it, but um, <laughs> I have that certificate and uh, and the pin. It makes me very proud.
0: Yeah, definitely. I would be very proud of that. It's a huge accomplishment, really. I don't know if there's money. From what I remember, the Daisy Award. It's set up by a family, a patient family, set it up for nursing to recognize excellence basically is is what you did which i think is cool that they nominated you i think it's cool that you got to receive it i mean it speaks to your dedication too because anybody who's had a patient like that a long term patient who is basically living on these units and they can't you can't get them to a facility Honestly, sometimes they actually get a little lower level care because at least for the nurses, when we're doing report, we're like, oh, you know, so and so, you know, that person already. Right. But there's been times where I haven't had that patient in a month or two. And actually, there have been major changes with that person. So that's usually my first, (laughs) for me, when I get report on that person, I'm like, don't just throw the S bar at me and say, I know this person because I don't, you know, but like for you to go in and actively make an effort with that patient, I think that's really cool. And you deserve it.
1: Yeah, I think uh, the nurses also had a little bit of fun. I think we we may or may not have tried to create a relationship between him and another long-term patient that we had uh, at a different unit <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> and get them to meet up
1: over physical therapy.
0: Oh, that's cute. <laughs> you had like a little uh, dating scene going on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny.
1: It's actually pretty funny. Um, the day after they met, he, well, it's not that funny, but um, he became delirious that night and I said he couldn't sleep because he was so excited.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we had a wedding, actually, at one of the my first job was at a nursing home and we had a wedding. It was two patients that met each other and they like fell in love. They were in their 80s and they were just like, yeah, the role was if they were married, they could share a room. So they got to move in together and like all oh. this stuff. It was really cute actually. And they had like this really cute like companionship, you know, at the end of their life. It was like, love's not dead. Don't ever give up was the message I took from that. (laughs) Yeah. So okay, something unique about our chat. We usually I think about a topic and I do all this research and all this stuff. You and I, we've talked multiple times and then we couldn't decide on like one topic. And I was like, we were having all of these awesome conversations like in our chat. And that's why I was sort of like, let's just jump on and have this conversation. Like we can just do it because we're talking about everything. We're talking about the Daisy Award. We're talking about Twitter. I mean, you could briefly, t- we don't have to go in depth if you don't want.
1: You know, I think uh, there was someone that posted on Twitter about how someone assumed that she was a nurse and how that was offensive. And so I didn't weigh too far into the debate, but being a person of color, especially no longer wearing my white coat, you know, I'm Filipino. This happens to me every day. And so my personal take on it, and I'm not sure if you have a take on it, is that I actually don't find it offensive at all. I find it um, pretty humorous and pretty funny. So this happens to me on a daily basis. You know, I think... To be offended by something like that in a way it says something negative about your feelings about what it means to be a nurse you know for me being a filipino in a hospital i think just from a math perspective i you know that makes me a nurse until proven otherwise and i i can't hold that against a sick patient who's tired who's in a very strange place if i walk into the room and they assume that i'm a nurse because um, you know just that's probably what the math would dictate just based on Who spends the most time at the bedside. So I just thought that was kind of an interesting take, but I understand that it's, um, you know, talking to some of my female residents, I can see how they get riled up about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have kind of the same feelings, even though I definitely don't have the same life experience, right? Like I'm a white woman. So I think generally people assume I'm a nurse and they're right, you know? So- I'm like, okay, you know, and I move on. I have seen like the female doctors come in and people assume that they're a nurse. And I've heard some of the conversations from the doctors and I I understand what you're saying. I think it's cool, like exactly right. Like a nurse is not a derogatory term. Like I'm proud of being a nurse. That's, you know, I wanted to go into this field. I love it. I don't necessarily want people to assume that I'm a doctor, but I think there are some female doctors that also say well you know they're, they're assuming based on my gender only that I'm a nurse and that I can kind of understand a patient like you're saying a patient is a patient and they're gonna have some wild views in general and we're just gonna treat them and move on you know <laughs> that for me is like I've heard I'm sure you've heard like the craziest shit yeah. ever <laughs> you know
1: Yeah, I had this debate with one of my residents and she understandably found it very offensive. You know, I just asked her the same question, which was, you know, how do the nurses go about their day without being angry all the time that people mistake them or assume, appropriately assume that they're a nurse? It's kind of funny, but...
0: I think too, earlier when we were talking, you said you have family member, you have family members, right? Plural, that are nurses?
1: uh, You know, I actually don't, but, um, you know, I think... I was saying that just the number of nurses, I mean, there must be 30 nurses that are Filipino in just my unit. I feel like I'm always working with all of my aunties and that gives me, I mean, aunties and uncles, I guess I should say, that makes me feel like, you know, I'm very at home around them and it automatically gave me a level of respect for everything that is, that nurses do.
0: Yeah, definitely. Again, I can like see your perspective, like you value nursing a lot. So I definitely see your perspective. So you're in California, I'm in New York. I wonder if that is a thing. I've worked in like two other states, but briefly. I mean, the Filipino nurses I work with, I mean, it's at least 50% on my floor. And we have potlucks together. We do the whole thing and I love them. And they're amazing to me. And like, oh my God, some of the best nurses I've ever worked with. But I wonder if that is something that other states know, like people listening. I wonder if that's something that they know.
1: Yeah, you know, I actually did medical school in St. Louis. And um, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of Filipino nurses there. And I've, um, I know on the East Coast, it's Brahmin, and also on the West Coast. And I think it's that way for a lot of historical reasons. I think there was a big labor shortage of nurses in the United States. And the Filipino government was really pushing it, because all of these nurses send money back home to the Philippines. And so I think there were just a ton of nursing schools in the Philippines that were pushing people to go out to the United States. And it was sort of a A mutually beneficial thing that i think stemmed from the philippines being colonized many decades ago
0: i didn't realize that at all so we take the nursing school we accept the nursing school from the philippines because of that history then
1: i'm not sure how it works now but i know several decades ago this is how it rose i think in filipino culture to be such a profession of prestige and a way out of poverty in the philippines
0: definitely yeah i mean within my own family it's different, right? But it's similar. It's similar in the way that like we definitely lived below the poverty line at one point. And nursing is a really great job with a lot of opportunity. And it was, you know, it's a bachelor's degree and you can kind of figure it out. At least we could, even though we were poor and, you know, my grandma kind of did it. And, Then once you have one nurse in your family, I feel like it's like everybody's a nurse, you know, (laughs) it's like, yeah, it's definitely
1: benefited me. I think I've never had those horror stories of, you know, sometimes people say when nurses are mean to them, I feel like even as a medical student, you know, nurses have approached me and been like, oh, are you in medical school? Are you going to be a doctor? Oh, your mom must be so proud, all these sorts of things. And I get paged to potlucks. And so it's definitely been a huge leg up for me. I don't want to get in trouble here. I understand the sentiment when you get mistaken for something else or someone assumes you. But I I guess the way I've learned to look at it is that it's not so much a derogatory offense that people assume that I'm a nurse because I'm a brown guy in scrubs, but it's more a positive thing on nurses. I have my list of 15 or 20 patients and I see them once a day and I try to keep it to once a day. Other than that, I'm either doing things, putting out fires, or I'm sitting in my office typing up notes. Versus Mm -hmm. the nurses, you know, statistically are 80% female. They're a large majority of them, at least in California, are Filipino as -hmm. well. And you guys go to the bedside five, 10 times a day. And so you guys are in the hallways more, you're in the patient rooms more. And, you know, I think when people see me and they they ask me a question like, where's the water or something like that, or how do I do this? And I just answer them. And then they see that I'm a doctor. They get very embarrassed, but my standard response is like, no, that's a compliment. But I usually let them feel embarrassed for a while, just because. it's <laughs> fun. Um, and then I tell them it's really not a big deal, and it's a compliment.
0: Yeah, I think. And that's then I very show them my cool. Daisy Award. Yeah. Yeah, and that they love you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so yeah. I, I guess that would be my taking point, and that that's you know my discussion I had with my resident as well is that it's more of a positive thing about you know how available nurses are than it is I think a negative thing about um, whether or not you can or cannot be a doctor.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay. We talked about all the things you love about nurses. I want all the dirt now. Tell me the annoying things.
1: You know, I actually listened to re-listened to a few of your podcasts earlier today and I think, you know, I it really resonated to me, I think what Dan and, and Bobak were saying is that when you're on night shift, I think you're a nocturnal nurse, right? Yes. And you know, I've had a list of cross-covering for a hundred patients and having to admit seven or eight patients, you know, as a hospitalist on a really mm-hmm. busy night. And when those pages and those direct messages start to come in, you don't know if they're important, if they're not important. And so it just gets to a level of stress and kind of anger. And it's not any nurse's fault, but it's just sometimes when the ER is crazy and the floor is busy and people are sick, you know, and then you pick up some of these pages and they're for quote unquote, very silly things, it can really make you short sometimes.
0: Definitely. And so yeah. I think
1: listening to that episode made me think that I should probably do better to be more like I was when I was first starting off.
0: Yeah. I mean, I could say the same thing about myself. You know, when I, when I was brand new, I was like bright eyed and wanted to do the very best job ever and save everybody, you know? And yeah, as you work for years and years and you start to get a little more jaded with like just hey, it's not even the doctor's fault. It's not the nurse's fault. It's just why is the system like this? Why are you covering 100 patients? You know, like that is kind of crazy. Like you shouldn't have that much responsibility. You should have somebody backing you up so you can answer those pages.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when you're an attending, you're, you're well compensated for that. So um, I think you should be a little bit more polite. But I definitely resonated with me when I saw I do appreciate that you were the the strongest person to stand up for residents actually on that podcast episode. And you were saying, <laughs> you know what, we did sign up for that, but that doesn't mean that we should continue to abuse these residents. I mean, no other profession does this. You know, law right. schools don't do this. Nowhere else do residents make so little and work sometimes a hundred hour work weeks, 30 hour calls, just because that's the way it's been done doesn't mean mm-hmm. it's the way it should be. And, you know, there's money for SIM centers, there's money for cancer centers and all this wonderful lobbies, but they say that there's not enough money to pay residents. And it's just nobody's made it a priority.
0: I couldn't agree more. There's money. There's money there. And there are people who are making the money. It's certainly not the residents. I mean, they're getting free labor. There's a page that they Post like for residency, like advocacy. And they were saying, like, the amount of money of basically free labor that the hospital systems profit off of. And it was like astronomical. I mean, it was like a billion dollars, you know?
1: Yeah. People say that it costs a lot of money to train residents up. It's not true because just the physical amount of work that they're doing, the Mm -hmm. number of patients they're seeing, the number of clerical tasks that they're doing, for one resident, it would just take many people to replace that at um, a regular standard salary for a hospitalist or something like that. So on top of the $100,000 a year, the ACGME, I believe, gives for each resident. And so Mm -hmm. the hospitals are definitely making money off of residents
0: so the account is residents protecting residents. And I actually have someone from their organization that we're going to be talking about that topic too, because it's just kind of crazy. Like there's so much money in this. And then like you're saying, there's no other profession that does that. And then not only is it bad for the resident, but there are patient lives. Like you're saying, we're not talking about a different type of profession where it's, you know, maybe it's just a business model or something. This is like a patient who's hanging on the balance of this phone call, you know? Yeah, and
1: especially during COVID when I think some of the residents were asking, where is our hazard pay? And I think Mm -hmm. some chair or some urologist somewhere at one of the medical schools was saying, oh, this is antithetical to the priorities and morals of being a doctor. But if you look that guy's salary up, he's probably making, you know, just a ridiculous amount of money. And there's so much money in medicine, you know, wasted and going everywhere. It's crazy, especially in the news you hear about this one resident recently passing away and right. It's just really tragic.
0: Definitely. And if there's any nursing students or medical students listening, don't ever let anyone negotiate with you about your money and try to guilt you about how why did you get into this? I had that happen to me once I tried to ask for a raise and the answer was, "Why did you get into this? Is it to help people or is it because of money?" Don't ever let anybody guilt you that because I guarantee that everybody in that room is making salary and they have negotiated and the hospital's making money, the insurance company is making money. So these people they want to play on your heartstrings because they know you're a caring person, you went into this profession, right? But It's not just about that. You deserve to be fairly compensated, also.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think, um, you know, when you were having that discussion, I just thought it was kind of funny how I think, um, you know, as a resident, your reflex is to say, oh, well, we signed up for this and, uh, you know, we can always do more. But it's just unfortunate. I remember being a resident and it being Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving, you're always working the holidays. And then, you know, your chief residents will come in with, you know, some IHOP or something, some cheap dinner worth eight ninety five, 95 And everybody's smiling and laughing and they take a picture, they put it on the Instagram page. And everybody's supposed to be grateful that, you know, basically the buying price of you being away from your family is eight ninety five 95 or whatever it costs for a, a small turkey dinner, you know? So.
0: Yeah. I mean, we have the same problem in nursing. We have the exact same problem. I mean, they will come around with a, you know, a cart that has tea on it or you know something with a cookie or a, you know, and listen, a lot of the people that are doing that actually at least in my hospital, they're like the nursing manager who actually gives a shit about you, right? So they might have even dipped into their own pocket. So no shade on those people going around doing that, but the hospital system could do more. I mean, masks are a really good example. A lot of people didn't have masks, you know, and um I would rather have a mass than a cookie or a granola bar or a banner, you know.
1: Being in California, I, I just can't imagine the horrors that you guys went through in New York. So <laughs> you guys really are heroes. I mean, everybody is, especially in New York City, to witness what you guys did and to be thankful for a few mass here and there. It's, you know, it's just insane. We just had so much anxiety throughout the months of March and April just Mm -hmm. seeing what was happening to you guys. And I I can't imagine what it was like. You know, we're watching it on the news. And for you guys to experience that up front, you know, thank you so much for everything you guys have done. I think for all the nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists, everybody on the East Coast and Houston, all these other crazy places, uh, it's unbelievable.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. It's been a crazy year. I mean, how was COVID for you?
1: You know, we just had to expand capacity. And so we were able to do that because we had months to plan. I think we are like a lot of the other countries in in Europe that we saw what was happening in Italy, in New York, where you guys were at. And so there was so much fear, but that was the extent of it. We had so much fear and anxiety. And, you know, we had all these cruise ships come by and that was a big scare, but they were talking about picking up one or two patients. And so it was never learning on the fly how to deal with, I mean, 900 or did, I'm not sure if it ever broke a thousand patients per day in New York. But just seeing that those numbers go up and up, um, just scary for us. But you know, unimaginable what you guys had to go through.
0: It was really weird. I mean, Dan and I have tried to record our like COVID story because oddly enough, him and I were working kind of side by side during that time. We were both in the ICU. I was on the first PUI unit, and it was like maybe twenty five beds or something. And then that quickly was. COVID only, you know, and then quickly it was like a second floor and then a third floor, you know, I mean, that's just, it was like a wave, like all of a sudden. And then I got bumped up to the ICU and then he was in the ICU. It was just like all hands on deck. I mean, it was certainly the closest I'll ever feel of like going to war. Like, it's certainly like, I'll never feel closer to what war is like than that experience. Like, even if it comes back to New York, which it might, you know, who really knows at this point, we just had another spike in Brooklyn, like all of a sudden. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't think even if that does happen here again, I don't think it will ever be like that first wave. That was just like, insane like we never thought it would happen like that you know I remember when the nursing managers were coming a- around and they were like preparing us and they were like setting up these stations and all this stuff and in my head I was like isn't this overkill like a little bit you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then now looking back I'm like wow you guys were kind of on it because I didn't see this coming like <laughs>
1: yeah yeah it definitely, I think a war is, at least for you guys in New York City. I mean, I think that's an apt analogy. Just the toll that the number of people that unfortunately, sadly passed away. I'm worried for you guys that um, you guys might have some PTSD from this. And you know, listening to your episode about um, all the misconceptions and all the misinformation. You know, I got into another Twitter debate online. You know, with some of these trolls, and I can't imagine what it's like for you guys to have seen those number of deaths and then to go online and see these people posting just, you know, utter crap. And some days I'll f- try to fight it, you know, post here and there. And then, but you just see it's, you know, even if you have a full-time staff of doctors and nurses and everybody else trying to fight misinformation, there's just so much of it out there. You you know, we have day jobs, you know, we can't keep up right. with all of these people, you know, promulgating these conspiracy theories. It's, yeah,
0: it's really definitely. frustrating and
1: demoralizing.
0: I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's so difficult to see some of that stuff. Like, it actually affected me mentally like i even almost more than covid it affected my mental health to see people denying it and to see people downplaying and saying oh it's just people with preexisting conditions and that kind of stuff i was just like okay but like i saw you know 50 year old patient who had a life otherwise and was living completely normal and just had asthma, for example, and was taken down, you know, this isn't a dying person, you know, so you get really defensive really quickly about it. So, okay. I'm a person like this too. I will fight with the trolls, which I know is against advice. Everyone says to stop when you're fighting with the trolls. Like what type of topics are you usually set off by? (laughs)
1: Most recently, it's the people dying with versus because of COVID. Mm -hmm. And if you're not directly taking care of patients, like I, you know, I think to some of my siblings or my cousins who, you know, they can say, oh, my cousins or my brother's a doctor, but they have no idea what it's actually like to see these patients get really sick and to realize that, you know, people that go to the hospital everybody has comorbidities. I might see someone with no past medical history, that admit that's not on a surgical service, you know, once a month, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so everybody that goes to the hospital has comorbidities. And I guess these people, if you've never filled out a death certificate, it's very easy to fall victim to this understanding of that maybe these people were gonna die anyways. And I see this, unfortunately, because I'm a you know, former software engineer in the tech scene. I follow a lot of these venture capitalists, Bro guys. And they Mm -hmm. all seem to be thinking, oh, well, if we just focused on health, getting people healthy, vitamin D, this, all of this stuff. And, um, you know, these are people with a lot of influence in the Silicon Valley, and they're pushing this just a lot of nonsense. You know, it's unfortunate that people can't understand it unless it happens to someone within their direct family.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's very sad. Even people, for example, patients that, again, I, I want to be careful. I don't want to breach HIPAA, but patients that we had that were very young and had no underlying condition. I mean, I saw these patients on the vent for three, four weeks. And I mean, granted in New York City, we were the first to get hit, right? We didn't know. We were doing things that now in hindsight, I think we would have we would have done differently, you know, early intubation. Usually that's our go-to. Now we're saying, of course we don't do that. But I saw people who even were healthy taken down by COVID. And then I saw people who were very, you would expect them, you know, a history of COPD or something. And they got better and went home. It was like, there were some patients that you couldn't even predict what was going to happen to them. That's the weirdest thing to me about COVID.
1: Yeah, you know, I would agree. I guess I would echo all of your sentiments. I feel like that's what makes it so tricky to study this disease and to figure out what's actually effective is that you see some of these patients and you start them on remdesivir or something else and they do get better. You know, I think if you're being realistic and you look at the way that we study medicine is that you have no idea what made them better or if that person was just luckier than someone else who continued to get worse. So it's very frustrating. And I think Definitely. it just makes it harder for the person to really understand what are the odds of this affecting me. And I think, you know, if you told someone that their odds of their plane crashing was 99.9%, there's no way they would get on that plane for one in a thousand chance. But you know, that's similar to what we're talking about here in terms of you being affected, but um, the downstream consequences of you affecting people with cancer people Mm -hmm. with other conditions that aren't afraid, you know, but they have to get about and do their lives because they also, you know, have jobs, they're essential workers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about your project. I want to talk about your Instagram and all of that stuff. Okay. Wait, first though, too, you also said that you're in tech and you like cracked the algorithm for Instagram. We have to talk about that. Oh. (laughs) You know, I,
1: uh, You know, maybe if some of your, uh, your listeners could tell me, I haven't cracked the algorithm for Instagram. I oh. did. I thought I did because we went from 10,000 to 20,000 users or followers in about a month. But uh-huh. um, I think we've added on 3,000 users and it's been like three months since that. So it's slowed down quite a bit. Okay. So, That's
0: pretty good though. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, I think they're, they're starting to prioritize reels and all of this other stuff. And so if you can fall into a wormhole online and just um, all the different strategies people have to Mm -hmm. try to grow your audience. But for whatever reason, I think I'm starting to do something wrong that initially the algorithms loved us. And now I think we've fallen out of favor a little bit.
0: I don't know if that's specific to you because I think I'm hearing that from other people and I've noticed it too. I used to get a lot, especially my stories. My stories were always the thing, not really my posts so much, but both have gone way down in traffic, I'd say the last month or so. And I don't, I'm not doing anything differently. So I don't really know why, but (laughs) I even, yeah, I messaged one of my friends who's like running a similar account. It's like a doctor account. And I was like, Hey, what's up with your traffic? And that person was just like, Oh no, you're, you're just sucking more, and I was like, "No, I'm not. I swear to God."
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think people don't realize how much of work it takes to grow this audience. You know, and I wouldn't recommend it to I think the layperson. You know, I always joke that it's sort of a pyramid scheme. Is that um, you start at the bottom and nobody listens to you, nobody recognizes you, and then you kind of find people at your level of popularity, and you notice that people don't you know recognize your account until you're in their sphere of popularity. And then you sort of find other people that realize, okay, if I comment on your post, you'll probably comment back on my post. And you yeah. read some of these comments, and they're they're a lot of fluff, uh, which is. And then I realize I'm making some of these same fluff comments, and it's just like, yeah. what am I doing? As uh, <laughs> but it's sort of the game that you have to play. Uh, I think if you want to be a quote unquote influencer,
0: yeah. Okay, say the handle of your account.
1: Yeah, uh, Instagram. Where Grep Med. G-R-E-P-M-E-D. People always ask what grep stands for. That's an old Unix command for basically parsing information out of large files. So I used to be a software engineer and on Twitter, it's grepmed ed because someone's sitting on grepmed.
0: Okay. What are you guys doing? I know I look at your stuff and I love your posts, but you're taking information from like places like up to date and you're making pictures or what are you doing?
1: Yeah, so we're basically an alternative to up-to-date. We're like Pinterest or Instagram, but useful as a medical reference, basically. I'm not sure, do you use up-to-date or Dynamed or these other things?
0: up we use, yeah. Yeah,
1: I have a love-hate relationship with up-to-date. But every time I try to go on up-to-date, I just get overwhelmed because there's so many mm-hmm. paragraphs and they all click, you link to a different article and it's just walls and walls of text, which for me is just overwhelming. I like pictures mm-hmm. I think a picture is worth a thousand words. And so we want to replace that with basically the really useful tables and charts and algorithms that you might find on up to date or on other places. So I found myself turning to Google Images all the time to sort of shortcut the information retrieval process. I think mm-hmm. I used to carry around this pocket medicine handbook, the green book, we used to call it now. I think it's purple or orange.
0: I have the orange one. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So
1: page 4-6, that's the only page that I always reference. And that was for hyponatremia because that's Uh always so confusing. And I always had to look it up every single time. And so, you know, instead of reading a 40 page article and up to date, you know, you look at that algorithm and it sort of encapsulates all that you really need to know for the essence of hyponatremia and how to think through that. And So we have algorithms, checklists, decision aids, less so clinical pictures like Mm x-rays and EKGs and skin Mm -hmm. rashes, but stuff that can really help. Doctors, nurses, paramedics, respiratory therapists, help them make decisions at the base bedside. So really yeah. boring stuff like conversion tables, compatibility tables, grading, things like that.
0: I think that's really cool. I agree that it's too much. Up to date is it's a lot. Like I'm trying to think of the last thing I looked up for up to date. I think I was looking up. Oh, I was looking up if somebody comes in with shingles, okay, and then what's the criteria where it's contact? What's the criteria where it's droplet? What's the criteria where it's nothing? You know, it's always different. And I always forget, is it disseminated? Is it partially disseminated? I don't understand. I'm always like, oh my God. So I'm looking it up, but there was like pages and pages and pages of this. And I was like, okay, I don't know. Just for me, I feel like your thing might've helped me because it would just be like a picture and like, this is contact and this you know, does the yeah. patient look like this? That's yeah. exactly
1: this kind of stuff that we're there for. I think my wife's actually a veterinarian. And so she got bit yesterday. And so we went to the urgent care and they were going to send her out without a tetanus shot. And I was like, this is, I was like, what? And I looked it up and I was like, you know, I couldn't find it up date. It was infuriating. And so mm-hmm. I actually forgot, but we do have an image for tetanus indications. And so it makes it very simple and up-to-date is really frustrating, but exactly stuff like what you're talking about. Yeah. That's the perfect kind of use case. I'm going to make sure that we have something for that.
0: Tag me in it. Yeah. <laughs> be like, but everybody will be like, why is Abby so interested in shingles? Like, oh my God.
1: Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> we're sort of trying to be like the internet archive, but for a lot of great content that people post on Instagram, on Twitter. So like, you just had Rishi MD on your podcast. He mm-hmm. posts these great charts, right? And yeah. if you're on Twitter, you post these charts. And if you don't have 10,000 followers, nobody sees it. It basically mm-hmm. disappears and it's lost forever. But if you share that on our website, people find it through, usually through Google images and they could use it and reference it again and bookmark it and everything's searchable. So we're sort of trying to preserve all of this great content that gets shared and just disappears.
0: Put it into one place. Yeah. So you have a team who's involved in this, right?
1: Yeah. You know, we have a couple of medical student volunteers who are helping create some of the content. And I used to be a software engineer, but um, Mm -hmm. I think just between being a doctor and trying to be an Instagram influencer and all these other things, (laughs) it's very time consuming. So uh, I'm more of the editor person. And so Mm -hmm. I've got a co-founder who's a really amazing programmer, much better than me, Keon, that helps with the technical aspect.
0: That's awesome. So we've said the word influencer twice now. What about that? How do you feel? What are your feelings about influencer?
1: I guess they're complicated. You know, I think uh, the algorithm, like we were talking about, has uh, slowed down from my perspective. And so I'm uh, less excited about it than I used to be when things were going on the up and up. But I guess it's a mixed bag. I'm not sure what the goals for some people are. You know, I can see some people do it because they get sponsors, they get endorsements. Mm but There are other people that are are actually really, really influential and great. And they've spread positive messages. All of the people that have been on your podcast have been great. You know, Eddie Joe MD is one of my friends that I've met online. He's great. You got should have him on your podcast.
0: Yeah, I was talking to him today about that, actually. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think
1: from an educational standpoint, you can find people like him, like Siri, like Bobak that, you know, post great standpoint if you're looking for education. But I feel like, you know, and that this is true for Facebook, all of social media, is that, you know, from a self-esteem standpoint, you see all these people posting highlights of their lives. And even when people talk about their setbacks and their drawbacks, it's almost like the interview question when you ask someone, what's your biggest weakness? And they give you a weakness that's really a strength. And I feel yeah. like when you hear people like that, you read those <laughs> posts, you're just like, oh, um,
0: yeah. <laughs> and then you,
1: you do sometimes read it, and you see there is inspirational. You know there is a point to a lot of it, but sometimes you can't help but be a little bit cynical.
0: Like it sounds like bragging a little. Right,
1: humble bragging. Correct. Yeah,
0: humble brag. Yeah, a hundred percent. Okay. Look where so I came
1: from, and look where I'm at. Yeah.
0: You're so right. Yeah, exactly. Like if you just go forward like I did and you can look this beautiful and your teeth will be as white. You know, that's my thing. I'm like, oh my God, I can't, I work night shift. I can't always look that glamorous, you know?
1: (laughs) And so, um, Uh. yeah, maybe a lot of this is just um, some bitterness from my standpoint. I always think that maybe if I put my wife on as the face of my med page, uh, we'd have a lot more followers, but... (laughs)
0: Probably honest. If I'm being honest, probably. Yeah. (laughs) So I guess, okay, here's a question. As somebody who also runs a business and markets it on Instagram, where's the line then? Because I mean, that's something I'm grappling with as well. Like, I have this idea that we could make conversations between doctors and nurses something that really doesn't exist. I don't see it in the hospital. We sit away from each other. We don't eat together. We're not even introduced to them. We don't have meetings together. I mean, all of this seems very easy to solve for me. And I would be happy to take on, like, let's solve it. Let's do it. But when, like you're saying, it takes a lot of time for you, right? You have a couple of people who are volunteering. It takes a lot of your time. You have a full-time job. What do you do? Because for you to continue to do something, it does have to be profitable, right? We all have to pay our rent or our mortgage.
1: Yeah. Um, You know, I can't fault some of these medical students who are $400,000 in debt. If they can, you know, make $500, $1,000 or much more than that, I think, for some other posts, I would probably do the same thing if I were in their shoes. (laughs) Um, so I guess I can't fault them for that. So it's tough, but I think, From a general perspective, I feel like you can tell, and I think this is, you know, just being in a lot of entrepreneurship circles. I think you can tell when people are being genuine about what they use and what they don't use. It's all of a sudden someone comes out of nowhere and is talking about their teeth cleaning, and it just doesn't seem to be in with their niche. Then it seems a little bit um, incongruent with um, what they're trying to sell. You know, I think, you know, if it's something like shoes or I'm a big fan of fake scrubs, I think everybody looks really great in them. I just bought one for my wife, actually, Uh for her birthday. So stuff like that, I mean, there's no conflict of interest in wearing fake scrubs because they make everybody look really great. (laughs) (laughs) But I think if you start to maybe, you know, push pharmaceuticals or which I don't think the companies are allowed to do, or if some people are inauthentic about what they're trying to sell. Like you you can look at some people and say, you've never used that food product before. Why are you selling this to me? But
0: I don't know. It makes me feel kind of weird sometimes if I am benefiting from a system that I'm kind of actively trying to take down. Like, let's be honest. Like I'm, I'm sort of saying like, hey, this system isn't supporting doctors. It's not supporting nurses. People at the top are making money. And then I'm like a corporate, you know, sponsored podcast. Like, my whole week has revolved around this problem, you know?
1: (laughs) Yeah. You know, the more I think about it, I guess I I wasn't prepared to answer this, but I really don't think for most of what I see, there's really any conflict of interest. I mean, I think I've talked to different entrepreneurs. I think, um, you know, trying to get their product out there, whether it's like streetwear. And some of the advice I give is to give your product away to some people. And a lot of people will wear it for free or will exhibit it. And I think if it's something definitely... I think, around nursing or doctoring or something like that, I don't really see that there is a huge conflict of interest unless it comes off really kind of cheeky or inauthentic in some way. I think if you are a person of influence, like any celebrity, I guess, if we're calling people celebrities, I think if you're careful, if you have an agent or your own personal agency, is to be careful about who you pick because I I feel like it can definitely cheapen your brand.
0: Yeah, definitely what is it like to have a wife who's a veterinarian? Like, what is that like? Do you guys talk about work?
1: Yeah, it's probably too much. I think veterinary medicine is a lot like human medicine. They use a lot of the same drugs, a lot of the same conversations. It's sort of like pediatrics in that um, you're dealing with the parents, but Mm -hmm. it's also a lot more difficult and stressful. I think you don't do residency or most people don't. And so you get out of vet school, which is a little bit more hands-on than medical school, but you get out of vet school and then you're just expected to practice.
0: Wow. And so
1: while I think doctors in residency, you have these training wheels of, you know, coming up with plans, but always having someone you could run it by, you get those three to five to seven years to practice. And veterinary medicine, I think in for most small animal private practices, you don't get a lot of that. So she kind of comes to me with some of the problems and I say, well, this is what we do in human medicine this is what we would do this. Um, <laughs> but of course we can, you know, CT scan and MRI, everything under the sun. So.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. So at her office, I mean, obviously she has limited, she can't MRI a cat every day. Right.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. So it's a big problem I think. Um, Cause I guess it's not unlike what I deal with, with people who don't have insurance, except, you know, I guess I don't really think about it. I'm distanced from it. But, you know, when people show up in the ER, we just do everything and mm-hmm. the bill comes six, nine months later and people declare bankruptcy or whatever they have to do, which is mm-hmm. crazy. But in animal medicine, you know, people say I can't afford that X-ray. Or it's kinda of like when I go to the mechanic, I don't know if they're just saying that I need this or if they're trying to charge mm-hmm. me stuff. Right. So there's a lot of, I think, suspicion from some of the clients. And they're like, why is it so expensive?
0: Right. Definitely. Also though, I mean, at least in my experience, I have a dog, I have a 12 year old dog who I love and I would do anything for, right? It is kind of hard for me sometimes because, you know, I mean, she's my baby, right? But let's be honest. I don't, we don't have insurance. I mean, I have pet insurance, but what it covers, it's not great. But the difference between that and like a human is they will give me the bill up front before they do it. Right. And they'll tell me, This is going to cost $1,200, which I've had them do. And I can agree to it or not agree to it. But like you're saying in the ED, we're just throwing every treatment we can. And we're not even really conscious of the cost necessarily because we're just doing whatever we can to save the person in the moment. Right. And then, yeah, that person has to deal with the bill. And they're not even aware of if I call 911, like me as a nurse, if I call 911 right now, I don't know how much that bill would be. You know, that's a problem.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. And it's something I guess I've psychologically shielded from myself to think about these things, um, which is sad.
0: Yeah. I mean, what else can you do though? I mean, in that moment, the person needs your help. That's it. You have to save, you know, do everything you can to save their life.
1: Yeah. It's really, it really feels like when I go to the mechanic, I really, I, I half the time, I just think they're taking me for a ride on all of these different things. They say I need to upgrade.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, That's really interesting. How did you and your wife meet?
1: Well, she was at uh, vet school in UC Davis and I was uh, doing residency there. So we met at Davis.
0: Oh, that's cute. Do you have pets?
1: We do. I've got two dogs, Balto and Hargo, which is a shrimp dumpling. And we were on our way to dim sum when we adopted her.
0: Oh, that's really cute. Balto is like that alaskan dog right with the yeah, medicine
1: I, I, I didn't realize that until we adopted him i'm actually not a pet person i was i had to transform into one quickly but um, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah you married a veterinarian you better you're a pet person now <laughs> yeah
1: i i held out for a while she kept wanting to bring home these crippled dogs and one-eyed dogs oh um, but um, we do have two normal very cute dogs
0: Oh oh my God. That's so funny. There's like a Balto cartoon movie. It was like one of my favorites when I was a kid. It was like my favorite movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah it's really funny. Yeah. Oh they're good God. pet
1: therapy for sure. After a stressful day.
0: Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I don't want to go back to COVID, but when I was like in the middle of COVID and it was like really, really bad. I don't think emotionally I ever felt that way in my life or maybe I might never feel that way again. And my dog was the only being around me that I was like, okay, you can be here. Like, that's okay. You know? Cause like, she was just like, I missed you and I love you, you know? And I was like, okay, okay. That's okay. But like everybody else in my life, even people that I love, I was like, I can't right now. Like I can't, you know?
1: Yeah. I haven't seen my uh, parents. Well, I've seen my parents. I've dropped off food, but um, just- Yeah, it's been a lot of social distancing, unfortunately.
0: Definitely. It's been a long, long year. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. And I really love your website. And I'm going to be linking it with this episode when I post it. And we'll put everything up together. Thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. You know, I... Can't recommend your show enough to people. I think it's just a a really great way to get people's perspectives together.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. Is there anything else you want me to talk about or to plug?
1: I would say, you know, if you guys are interested, check out our website or just try using Google Images, actually. I think if you search for stuff and you can't find it, try using Google Images. It's a great way to shortcut information. And I think you'll find that we're the number one search result for a lot of those things. So that helps us out as well if you click through that way. We're not making any money. We're losing money, uh, I think, on a monthly basis. So, we might actually have to, you know, before I put my foot in my mouth too far, you know, sell out ourselves and try to find some sort of a way to make money off of this thing. But I think, first and foremost, we were just trying to have a global impact and just really make lives a little bit easier for doctors, nurses, everybody. I think there's so much Mm -hmm. note bloat in the chart, and it's just, you know, all of our notes are just copy pasted, just so much junk. And so, If there's a way that we can help to reduce some of that cognitive overload, I think that's our our mission and also to be able to be a free resource, I think, um, worldwide.
0: Definitely. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that's really important and a really great initiative. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We really appreciate it. If you have any questions or comments, any topics you'd like to submit, please send them to rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. You can also send them to our Instagram account, which is rnmdpodcast, or my personal Instagram account is the nocturnalnurse. Um, If you like the show, please like, please subscribe. We need the love right now. We're just getting started. Also, if you have any suggestions um, of how we can make this better, this is for you guys. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Bye-bye.